Good afternoon. So I'm Dr. Kang Lan Ti and I'm a lecturer in the University of Sheffield. So I work in the Department of uh, Chemical and Biological Engineering, working in biomanufacturing. So I have a lot of interest in using sustainable ways to produce products. And of course, one of my current interests is really looking at how to manufacture food and food ingredients in a more sustainable manner. Hi, I'm uh, Matt Hutchinson. I'm the entrepreneurial lead of Renew Food. So we have a team of protein scientists here at the University of Sheffield uh, looking to create novel protein-based flavouring ingredients that can enhance the uh, taste and sort of sensory profile of plant-based alternative foods. Obviously, this is a question to both of you, really. So how are alternative proteins proving to be more sustainable? And what other benefits uh, do, do production techniques have of alternative proteins to promote sustainability? So I think the real benefit uh, from a sustainability point of view is uh, when we look at sort of the, comparing the ecological footprint of these alternative proteins and how they're manufactured with traditional animal-based uh, farming techniques. So at the moment, uh, animal-based farming produces about 60% of the greenhouse gases produced by the food industry. It also uses um, sort of about 90% of, of the uh, uh, sort of land mass that's available for, for humans, as well as using 75% of human sort of water footprint also goes to sort of animal-based uh, sort of agriculture. Comparing that to alternative proteins, uh, we're looking at reductions of sort of ninety percent of greenhouse gases. We're looking at a massive uh, drop in sort of the need for water and for uh, the land as well. Obviously, we don't need these big farms when all we're making is um, sort of enough protein in sort of bats that can go in inside buildings. Um, so I think comparing, uh, there's a lot of evidence already out there that uh, these alternative proteins uh, are already sort of showing that they are much more ecologically friendly compared to sort of traditional animal-based agriculture. Um, we're seeing this in sort of publicly available sort of uh, journals. Um, so there's an article in Nature published uh, last year that was comparing. This is where I got my statistics from. Uh, sort of comparing the uh, impact of uh, well, we're looking at the impact of animal-based agriculture and saying, okay, if we can change this to alternative proteins, then obviously we can start to reduce this. Uh, but also the companies that produce alternative proteins are very sort of proud of the, 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 their sort of green impact. So if we look at companies like um, Perfect Day, uh, impact sort of status uh, mm -hmm. shows exactly the reduction in uh, greenhouse gases in land, in water, in resource costs, uh, all of that, and that's sort of a big ecological impact from sort of, uh, that we can see from uh, alternative proteins. I think maybe if I can add to that, because we, we often talk about uh, sustainability from the point of view of climate, land, water, which I mean is one of the most important things that actually all of us has a responsibility towards, but also especially for the food system, uh, food security is one of uh, a, a huge challenge. And from that perspective, we are also really squeezed from all sides in the sense that in terms of uh, demand, we are facing a growing population whereby it's requiring that we are going to have to produce the amount of food to feed 10 billion people by 2030. And studies have shown that if we want to feed 10 billion 
with the protein diet of a standard uh, North American or European kind of uh, food profile, it is definitely not going to be sustainable. And we can't have that and still achieve all our um, the sustainability development goals. So from demand perspective, there clearly is a need for intervention there, whether in terms of reducing our demand or finding an alternative way to do that. And if we looked at from the um, production side, I mean, we have, I mean, the, the production of uh, crops and livestock, actually we often encounter challenges with respect to, for instance, diseases, as well as, uh, well, climate change plays a huge role here as well, because uh, climate change and where unpredictable weather give us or uh, harvest each year sometimes, as well as diseases whereby we are all familiar with how, for instance, a bird flu affects uh, the chicken and then the um, swine flu affects pork and then the macaw disease, how it actually affects the beef. So we, we do have to consider all this when thinking about how to make our food system sustainable. And of course, on top of all of this, we have to add to it the geopolitical situation just a very recent uh, Ukraine situation whereby it affected how we get our sunflower oil. So I think from sustainability perspective, environment, um, even beyond that food security, resource utilization, all has to be considered in terms of um, producing a more sustainable food system. And I think uh, alternative protein definitely have a role to play here. Now, uh, during your um, experiments, studies and whatnot into this, what new innovations in flavour have you discovered in the process of creating alternative proteins? That's great. I think um, in themselves, using proteins as flavouring ingredients is uh, quite a big innovation. I mean, if we look back, uh, um, I can't remember, 20, 30 years when uh, protein-based sweeteners were first sort of identified, uh, they haven't necessarily made their way into the market, but uh, that's sort of the first time that, oh, there's maybe potential here for um, sort of additives and flavorings that can come from sort of proteins. But what we've really seen um, sort of taking up is in the past you know, decade is the rise of impossible foods and use of their sort of soy leg hemoglobin as a protein based, uh, essentially a protein based flavoring ingredient to provide like this meaty flavor that's, that's really missing in uh, a lot of other sort of plant-based uh, sort of foods or uh, alternatives. Um, but I think the big, uh, so the big innovations that are still to come is bringing this um, sort of level of, sort of meaty flavorings and also just um, the kind of familiarity as well to these um, alternative proteins that are kind of missing at the moment. Uh, what the consumer kind of wants is um, not just a sort of healthier uh, burger or bacon uh, or chicken, but they also want a, a sort of alternative to these meats that kind of that reminds them uh, of the meat that it's replacing, if that makes sense. So that starts a taste. Um, and there's definitely room for innovation in sort of this uh, taste in sort of regards to sort of the meaty sort of aspect. Um, but we've had uh, in the past sort of six months or so, we've been in contact with several people in um the alternative food manufacturing industry as well as the flavoring industry just have some conversation to them about where they see the innovation coming uh, and uh, in one of these conversations with uh, a flavoring uh, company uh, we talked a lot about flavor modulation um, so there's a lot of room there for sort of innovation 
And in fact, what the quote from them, they said, the future of flavor is in modulation. It's in uh, not just adding these flavoring, but adapting sort of what's already there. Um, in terms of sort of alternative proteins, what we're seeing here is uh, masking of a lot of off tastes that we get in um, uh, the base protein, be that soy, um, pea protein, or if it's like a fungal protein, um, sort of masking these off flavors to um, create, again, this sort of familiar taste rather than something that reminds you that what you're eating isn't meat, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I think in terms of the innovation itself, so certainly there's a lot of, uh, actually right now it's really a, a, an era, I would say, a time whereby the our food innovation is really accelerating. We see new products and uh, new technology coming out all the time. So when we are actually working, when we started to work in the uh, developing new flavors for food, we started also to see that from technology perspective, actually, the what we have right now in terms of the uh, biotechnology, synthetic biology, our science actually allow us to do a lot with what we have in terms of methods and technology. So, uh, for instance, uh, synthetic biology is one of the I would say one of the most important scientific development in the last. I would say in the last decade, maybe in the last century. And I think it will continue to play a very big role. So from, from our, well, if we look back in our diet, actually humans have been really good at the industrialization. Even if you look at it from the food system, we actually focus a lot in monocultivation. Uh, in fact, for example, our banana, well, there's thousands, more than a thousand species we eat one. And, um, the number of the, of the species of meat and crop that we eat is really a very small subset of what is available. So I think in terms of uh, technology, now we have the tools from genomics, for example, to look into what is available in species that are existing, but really waiting to be explored and developed into a new innovative product. So I think there are really there's really a lot of scope in doing that. And uh, also from the perspective of um, fermentation. So there are a lot of development in recent years whereby we can try to engineer or try to develop strains that are better producers of different products. I think taking from a different industry, for example, the fuel industry, production of bioethanol, people have tried to make strains become much better producers of bioethanol, such that they can become cost-effective and uh, easy to produce. So I think it will, we will probably see a similar parallel in the food industry, whereby microorganisms, for example, the yeast, which is a very important workhorse in the food industry, being developed into produce, becoming better producers of all the different ingredients and different types of food that's used in the food industry. Mentioned before that you know you're looking with, with flavors specifically looking at something that mimics the flavor of meats. Um, are we now looking at creating direct replacements for meat, or is there another direction we can go in the producing of alternative protein products? So I think if you look at what the market's like now. Uh, a lot of it is looking at direct replacements of meat. Uh, and the biggest reason for that is looking at who the sort of target consumer is. Um, 
a lot of people who sort of um, who I, who I talk to about, oh, I, I'm now working with sort of plant-based meats. The question I always ask is, is why um, why do vegetarians and vegans want plant-based meat? They don't like meat. They don't eat it. Why do they want it? Uh, but the answer is, it's not necessarily for strict vegetarians or vegans. The main uh, target consumer of alternative proteins are flexitarians. They're traditional uh, meat eaters, uh, traditional consumers who um, are definitely more aware of the health impact and the ecological impact that animal-based foods uh, are having. So they're wanting to uh, lower the amount of uh, meats or animal-based products they consume. Uh, and alternative proteins are now filling a, a niche um, wherein these consumers can still enjoy the foods they like. They can enjoy um, all the sorts of meat that they absorb used to perhaps growing up um but now without the sort of negative health impact negative ecological impacts without the sort of the animal worth welfare issues uh so that's sort of why um at the moment yes a lot of the focus is on meat um particularly on uh, a lot of the products associated with um sort of beef we're looking at uh, burgers we're looking at mints uh, a lot of that is to do with the fact that the beef industry is the biggest uh, sort of producer of uh, greenhouse gas emissions from uh, sort of animal-based agriculture, closely followed by um, lamb and mutton. Uh, so these are sort of the need for phasing these sort of out or lowering the amount of the sort of the market share that uh, traditional uh, sort of meat has and replacing it with alternative protein. Uh, that's sort of where the need is and it's sort of where the, the want is from there as well. Uh, what's also interesting is that the amount of strict vegetarians and vegans in the UK hasn't really changed in the past um, 20 or so years. There was a YouGov poll uh, that came out, um, I can't remember if it was last year or earlier this year, but the uh, amount of vegetarian and vegans, a portion of the UK population um, that was vegetarian and vegan was about, in, Compared pescatarians, about seven percent, uh, and the amount of the UK population that uh, now considers themselves flexitarian, which is a sort of quite a new term that's come about in the past well, ten years or so, is now fourteen percent. So um, they're definitely the bigger consumer market, and there's also more people out there who definitely want to lower the amount of meat that they um, are currently consuming. But I'm quite aware of the alternatives yet, so I expect that 14% figure to rise uh, over the next few years as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I suppose I, I agree in the sense that very much we are driven by the drive towards more sustainable um, system, as well mm -hmm. as really the market forces in terms of what people are looking for in terms of what they want to eat and Alternative meat is the most direct and clear first starter, I would say. But I, I, I believe it's probably not going to end there in the sense that um, if you think about from a very scientific perspective, what we need is carbohydrates, proteins, and um, meat is a form of protein, but the protein doesn't have to be existed. I mean, it doesn't have to be in that form. So even if you look at... Um, the current, current scene right now, there's a lot of people producing alternative dairy. So that is something that is already, um, I would say, quite well um, into its development. 
And also the technology in terms of producing alternative protein can be a way of allowing us to look into how to produce food that has, you know, um, cultural value, but really shunned right now, for example, foie gras. So people don't really, really eat it now because of uh, concerns with animal welfare, for instance. But can we produce it differently such that we mitigate this concern, but can still produce that flavor? Um, also, if we look at protein, I think protein bars are not unfamiliar for athletes and people who are very health conscious. Can alternative protein be used to produce that? Yes, definitely. And probably in the longer future, when we um, go down 10, 20 years, it could be perhaps the easiest way to produce protein bars, whereby it has a very defined uh, composition of what an athlete needs and uh, how to actually, in fact, even um, tune that such that it favors or it actually enhances the performance of athletes in certain areas. And we talked a lot about precision medicine in the last years, our last decade. But if you think about food, we encounter situations whereby people uh, have allergies, so they can't eat certain, certain products, or they have um, medical conditions whereby certain type of protein is not, um, or it doesn't, it, certain type of protein cannot be consumed. So in, in preparing alternative food, uh, it, in producing alternative protein, essentially one of the advantages that we can actually fine tune that to suit this um, population whereby probably they would have on a normal food system just have to shunt away from if I cannot eat nut, then I just simply cannot eat that. So mm -hmm. um, it could be a new, it, it is a, probably a quite a niche market, but I think there is value in, in, a, in being able to, to do that.